jump into it. I saw some of y'all got some holiday decorations up. Good for you. Nice. Any turkey disasters? Nothing? My smoker started acting up on the last bit. I was nervous, but it turned out all right. It turned out all right. I was praying. I don't pray often, but when the smoker goes out, I mean, I am on my knees. I believe in a God in that moment. I'm going to tell you what. So, uh, now listen, hey, um, if you were around for the uh, annual business meeting last week and uh, you got your membership all signed up and everything, and if you didn't, it's not too late. We'd love to welcome those of you that say this is my church as members. You can do that online, or if you have any questions about that, stop by the Welcome Center. But um, we kind of gave information to everybody that was there around the sale of the land and our kind of relationship with Loveland Housing Authority and the letter of intent, and that vote passed. And so we're very excited. So thank you all very much. So just next steps are we wait for Loveland Housing Authority. They have some grant funding that they're working on and probably the next update will come around March. So just want everybody to know that. But we're, that's one of our emphasis this year and our piece is worth it is new things is what we're talking about. And one of the new things is to be debt free by the end of next year. And so as a church, so that just really allows us to just invest more and more of our resources into tangible programs, and uh, so we're grateful for that. So that's exciting, wonderful, good news, all right? And if you're curious about what I'm talking about, you should have come to the... No, I'm just kidding. If you're curious about it, you can shoot me an email or stop by the Welcome Center. I don't even know if the meeting's on demand. I don't think it is, but uh, yeah, so that's good. So what child is this? That's the name of our series that we're talking about. If you're a guest this morning, thank you so much for being here, tuning in for the first time maybe. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads. I love Christmas. It's my favorite time of year. I always feel like we should just launch the first song of every Christmas season is, it's the most wonderful time. It's just, it's my favorite. I love it. I love the Christmas season. I love the commercialization of Christmas. Can I get an amen from the house? Some of y'all are like, oh, the commercialization. I love it. It's everywhere. People are like, stop talking about Christmas. I think it's wonderful personally. So I love it. It's everywhere. I love decorating the house. We got the big inflatables up. We got this Mickey and Minnie that they struggle though. I don't know. I might have to take them out of the starting lineup. They're a little bit of weather, and they just like fall apart, so I don't know. We might have to put them in warmer climates, but uh, I love it. It's wonderful. It's great to see neighbors out in our neighborhood. This is our first neighbor. This is our first Christmas in the neighborhood that we're in. Roof pitches are a little steeper, so I didn't get as many lights on the house this year. I got up there. I was like, oh, no. Uh-uh. Sorry. I don't believe in God that much. I'm not getting up on that roof. That's uh, what I thought in that moment, but, uh, so, but we got the lower, lower roof line done. But uh, what, I love the Christmas season because everybody kind of gets into it. It's a holiday season. We're in a celebratory mood. And one of the big questions that we always ask is this song that we sing is, what child is this? That song was written in 1885. The lyrics were 1885 by a guy named Chatterton Dix. What a name, right? You know that guy was like highbrow, right, with a name like Chatterton right, wrote this song, and it has endured. It's endured because it's a question that we never fully answer. Like, every generation is, is like, handed this question to answer, what child is this? Or as Mickey, our music director, says, whose kid is this anyway, right? That's the question that we tackle, and we've answered it in lots of ways. Like, is this child God? There were a group of people, a group of Jews in the first century that encountered this Jesus, both walking dying and living, and they answer the question, this must be God. And then we have people who say, well, this is a, a great moral teacher. Some people say Jesus was an insurrectionist, a rebel who was 
killed by the Roman authorities because this Jesus was, was leading a revolt, was trying to establish a new kingdom here on earth, right? Some would say that he was a heretic, that this one who came and kind of seemingly abolished the law, even though Jesus said, I'm not abolishing it, I'm fulfilling it, right? There, there, there was all this question. Now, there's a guy named C.S. Lewis. How many of you ever heard of C.S. Lewis? Everybody's like, Jesus, C.S. Lewis, right? I don't know what it is about Protestant world. Like, we love C.S. Lewis. I was at a conference one time, and we were putting this conference on, and we had a speaker, uh, Jill Briscoe, just a wonderful woman, and she was talking, and, and she's English, and she said, in the, I was sitting next to my sister, who's a huge C.S. Lewis fan, and she says, oh, one day when I was talking to C.S., and my sister like about fell out of her chair, like, he's a real person that people knew, and somebody's alive, we can talk to him, right? So C.S. Lewis wrote this book called Mere Christianity, and in this book, he famously kind of grapples with one angle of like having to wrestle to the ground, like, who is this Jesus? Like, what child is this? And in Mere Christianity, he writes this, and I'm going to read this very long quote, which you're never supposed to do in public speaking, so just hang in there with me. He says, I'm trying here to prevent you, uh, prevent anyone from saying a really foolish thing that people often say about him, that's Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, right? He says, I don't accept his claim to God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or he'd be the devil of hell, right? Lewis is saying here, you can't say that Jesus was just a great moral teacher because of some of the things that Jesus said. Now, I have kind of some issue with Lewis's line of thinking here, uh, but that's not the point. The point is he's drawing his readers in and saying, you have to make a choice. He says, you must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, I would say the followers of Jesus didn't leave that up to us, right? I think there's, again, I think there's some interesting things about his logic there. But what Lewis is writing and what has become so famous is, is Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord, right? There's that question that plagues us. And so for two millennia, we've grappled with this. Who is Jesus? I was in the grocery store line the other day, and, you know, Time Magazine, like, repurposed its, like, every year, like, Jesus lineup of articles, you know, and they make a special edition, 2022, like, who is Jesus? And it's, like, articles that they, I'm sure, recycle every seven years, and they make a good buck, right? But we, we ask this question, like, the world, in a lot of ways, is enamored by this Jesus. And for some, for some, Jesus is this path to, like, wealth and health, right now, right? Jesus is this way. You just follow Jesus, do what Jesus says, and you're going to be healthy. Good things are going to happen to you. And some people believe that Jesus is this path to health and wealth, maybe not now, but later at least. Later, at least after you die, you get to go to heaven. Jesus is this path to know that you can go to this place called heaven, which is somewhere out there. And so that's the way some people think about Jesus. Now, for some Jesus is actually an icon of freedom. Jesus represents freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from addiction, freedom from pain, freedom from sorrow, freedom from you can take it. But for some, there, Jesus is this icon of freedom. But here's what's fascinating for some. Jesus is an icon of oppression. Depending upon what country you grew up in, what religion you're a part of, depending upon what, what branch of Christianity you grew up in, 
Like the name of Jesus is actually not a name that brings freedom, but actually brings trauma because of that experience, right? Colonization in the name of Jesus. All these things are a part of the story of answering the question, who is this Jesus? And so the truth is, and the real tension around this question is that Jesus' birth has brought healing and hope and peace to some, but pain and violence to others. Like this person who walked the earth, what we've done with this person. And so we ask this question, exactly what kind of child is this? Is this a child of peace or is this a child of war? Because it seems like this child has brought both into the world. Is this a child of inclusion or is this a child of exclusion? When followers of Jesus say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, right? To say that Jesus is the exclusive Savior of the world, does that exclude people? Right? These are real honest questions. So this Advent season, we want to honor like, the complexity in that question. We want to honor the history of what has been done with Jesus. And so this week, what I want to do is start with this Gospel of Luke, right? And I want to look at how there's this poem in the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke that helps us understand how the earliest followers of Jesus answered this question, what child is this? And I think it's going to give us a framework for the next three or four times that we gather together. So I want to look at Luke chapter 1 and get a little bit of wisdom around almost what did the early followers, what did Luke receive about Jesus? Now, if you're kind of new to the Bible, if you're new to the story of Jesus, or maybe you've been around it a whole lot, but you've never really taken the time or never really have been encouraged to like critically examine the story of Jesus' birth, if you read the story of Jesus' birth in the Gospels, you'll find a lot of things that we celebrate didn't quite seem to happen that way. Right? If you read the stories, you'll learn, oh, wow, like we've taken some tradition and we've taken some stuff from the New Testament. We've mashed it all together to try and make it all make sense. But Matthew and Luke are two of the four Gospels that actually give us an infancy, a birth narrative, and they're actually quite different. And they're both beautiful, and they're both being used to tell us something about Jesus. But I want to look at Luke specifically. Now, in Luke's gospel, as he tells the story, you have, it, it's quite interesting. His story doesn't begin with Mary, doesn't begin with the genealogy like Matthew. Luke's story begins with a righteous couple who are older in their years, it says, maybe beyond the age of having children. And, and, and you get this big motif that comes out of the ancient Near East of like God intervening in the life of a barren family, particularly a barren woman. And so you have this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, both of, both of a priestly line, and you have an angel that comes and visits. And this angel, named as Gabriel, comes and visits Zechariah. And Zechariah has this dream, and the angel comes and starts to say, hey, you're going to be important, and this is really amazing, and you're going to have a son, and you're supposed to name him John. And Zechariah goes, what? How is this going to happen? Have you seen how old my wife is? That's, that's just what the text says. Don't get mad at me. Don't get mad at me. Gabriel didn't like the answer. Gabriel like, gets a little indignant. He's like, I am Gabriel. I stand before the God of heaven. So now you can just shut your mouth. And so Zachary, Zachariah goes mute for all of the pregnancy. And Elizabeth's like, amen. <laughs> right? So, so he has this encounter, and now he's mute, right? And then the next part of the story is that same angel goes and visits Mary, and says to this virgin who's betrothed or engaged to Joseph, hey, guess what? You're going to have a child. And this child you should call Jesus because he is going to be the Savior of 
his people. And Mary says, how's this going to happen? I'm a virgin. It's interesting. Gabriel has a totally different response for Mary. By then, he's like, I probably didn't handle that one pretty well. Got called into HR. (laughs) Got a write-up in the file. (laughs) Stop making people mute, Gabriel. They're human beings. They don't understand these things. Come on. So he handles Mary with a little more gentleness. He's like, oh, it's going to be the Holy Spirit, and it's going to be beautiful. And Mary's like, okay, sounds great. I'm in, you know. Be it unto me. And then, and according to Luke, after this visitation, Mary decides, I had to go visit my relative Elizabeth. I heard she's pregnant too. This is crazy. And so she goes and visits Elizabeth. When she sees Elizabeth, the child inside of Elizabeth leaps, according to the story, because it gets close to the child inside of Mary, and they have this moment together. Mary busts out in song. It's like a musical, <laughs> right? She starts singing, you know? And, and they're like having this moment together. She actually stays for three months. That's a visit right there. Two pregnant ladies, three months, and one guy that can't talk. <laughs> he just does, right? He just, yes, you know. And no idea where Joseph is in all of this, right? Joseph's like, you go visit your relative. That's fine. I'll hang out here. Right? So she goes and visits. So, and then after three months, Luke tells us that she leaves. And at that point in time, Elizabeth gives birth to her son. And in that moment, they're trying to figure out how to name, like, what should we name him? And they want to name the child Zachariah. And Elizabeth says, nope, we're calling him John. And the people start getting really irritated. So there's no John in your family. That's not how this works. And so Zachariah, who still can't speak, is like calling for a pad of paper, right? So they bring over a pad of paper and a pen, you know, maybe it's an iPad, I don't know, bring it over. And, and he writes, name him John. And they all have a son. So at that moment, Zechariah can speak again. And it's in that moment when Zechariah speaks that Luke does something really powerful in the story. My opinion, Luke takes a poem, right? And he's like, I got to help people understand what Zechariah said, because the story says that Zechariah just began to bless God. And so what Luke does is he's taking this, he takes a, 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 what's probably two poems, right? A poem about John the Baptist, just two lines, and he takes this big, long poem that had developed about Jesus and what God was doing with Jesus, and he says, this is the song of Zechariah. Like, this is what it was all about. So Zechariah busts into song in the story. And here's what it says, and I want to read the part of this, what's called the Canticle of Zechariah. He doesn't get much play on Christmas time, I understand. I want to read this because this is probably one of the earliest poems that we have about the earliest followers of Jesus and what they thought about the significance of this child that was born right? And so we want to look at that. I'm actually going to skip the two verses about John the Baptist because it's just kind of like jammed right in the middle of this. You can go and read that if you want to. But we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verse 67 through 74, and then 78 through 79. So 75, 76, 77 are about John the Baptist. The rest of it is about Jesus, interestingly enough. And so here's what it says. It says that Zechariah, his father, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, and he said this, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited. Everybody say visited. I want you to hang on to that word. That's an important word. For God has visited and brought redemption to his people. What does this tell us? Well, the first thing that this line of this poem tells us is that the earliest followers of Jesus believed that Jesus was the visitation of God. They experienced Jesus. They developed communities around Jesus. They developed songs and poems and writings. And in this very early poem, they declared right away that this was God's visitation. This was the God of Israel visiting with us. 
Matthew, right, who writes his gospel in a different place to a different group of people for different reasons, his according to his, this is what Jesus is all about. He says the angel that visits doesn't visit Mary, the angel visits Joseph, and the angel tells Joseph that the child's name will be Emmanuel, God with us, right? Same kind of idea, the, the, the one who is with us, this visitation. John, the gospel of John, who gives us a very cosmic understanding of Jesus, says that the Word became flesh. All telling us the same thing. Mark, Mark is like, this is all nonsense. I don't care about the birth of Jesus. Let's just jump into stuff. Just starts right with the baptism. Mark doesn't tell us anything about the birth of Jesus. Doesn't know anything about the story. And so there's this belief in the earliest followers of Jesus that what is central and what is foundational is to recognize that there is some magnificent, beautiful visitation of God in Jesus. And so the song of Zechariah goes on and it says this, He, God, has raised up a horn for our salvation from the house of David, his servant, even as he promised through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So Luke is kind of drawing and this poem is drawing on to the promises that God had made. And that promise was what? Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Right? Remember when this is being written. Remember the time in history where Jesus enters the scene. A time where there's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of just foreign oppression. Now the Romans are in charge. There hasn't really been a prophetic voice that's been crying out. You've had dynasties fighting for control and power over the nation. And in this moment, like, this is what Jesus, this is what the earliest followers are writing, and they're developing beautiful poetry. And he says, this is it, that there's a salvation from our enemies, from the people that hate us, and that God is showing mercy to our fathers to be mindful of his covenant and of the oath he swore to Abraham, our father. Now, the oath to Abraham was what? Was not just for those who were Jewish, but was for all mankind, that all the nations would be blessed. All the nations were blessed. So the earliest followers of Jesus from this poem, we can understand that they believed that Jesus was the mercy of God. That what this visitation was a mercy of God, like the promise given to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed through you has come. That this wasn't just, that Jesus was not just about for the, the, the Israelites, for the Jews. No, that this was for all people. This goes back to the blessing given to Abraham. And the poem goes on and it says, and to grant us that rescued from the hand of enemies, without fear we might worship him in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See, this rescue, this work, the earliest followers believed that Jesus was the rescue of God. Right, that there was a rescuing, that we'd be able to worship God without fear, that we'd be able to worship God without wondering what was going to happen next, who was going to burn down our temple, who was going to harm us. And so in some ways they said this Jesus was a rescue from God. Right, this visitation, this act of mercy, this act of inclusion. And there was also something very powerful about a rescuing reality that they saw in Jesus. Now what's interesting is when this is being written, right? I mean, when this poem is being written, it might be being written maybe 10 years after Jesus. The situation hasn't changed. It's just gotten worse, <laughs> right? We're headed towards the temple being destroyed. We're headed towards massive starvation. We're headed towards probably one of the darkest days in the history of Israel. Yet there's this group of people within Judaism that said, no, Jesus is our rescue. Jesus is our rescue. And then here's kind of the anchor verse for the series, the one that I would love for you to take some time to read every day. I think it's 47 and 48, or 46 and 47, I'm not sure. 
It says, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the daybreak from on high will visit us. There's that word again, visit. Right? This poem starts with a visitation from God. Like the statement, this is what has happened in Jesus. And then like it switches tense back into like this voice of Zechariah. This daybreak, this light will visit us. And what will this light do? Will shine on those who sit in darkness and death's shadow. This visitation, this rescue, this mercy is going to shine a light on those in darkness and death's shadow to guide our feet into the path of peace. What child is this? Well, don't miss this because Luke is telling a story in all of his gospel and in the book, in the book of Acts is that the earliest followers of Jesus believed and they passed on that Jesus was the path to peace. And that this path would be illuminated by Jesus, by his teaching, by his life, and it would shine brightest in our darkness. It would shine brightest when we're living in death's shadow. And that's the path to peace. And so we say, well, what child is this? Luke, right off at the beginning, in Luke chapter 1, says, make no mistake about it, this child will light the path to peace. This child isn't going to light a path to the law. Here's how you kind of do more of the law. Here's how you earn God. Here's how you just make sure you follow all the right rules. Nope, that's not the path that Jesus is going to light up. It's not the covenant. The covenant isn't the path to peace. As beautiful as the covenants were, that's not the path to peace. It's not Rome. It's not the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that comes through violence and war and subjugation. No, Luke says something amazing is happening here, and I want you, Theophilus, to know it. That's how he starts off. He says, it is this path to peace. That's what Jesus illuminates. Luke wants us to know right from the beginning, this Jesus lights the path. If you're sitting in darkness, if you're sitting in, in the shadow of death, there's pain and hurt, that there's a path to peace. There's a path to fullness and wholeness and rest and security and inner completeness. That's what that word peace means. Peace is not simply, from a biblical concept, the absence of tension. Peace is almost inner contentment, inner completeness, rest in the midst of tension. That there's this space in our hearts and in our lives that we can hold and that we can be held into, that no matter what's going on around us, we can say it as well with my soul. And this like inner wholeness, inner peace, that's the path that Jesus lights up. Now, where in your life, your everyday normal life, do you lack inner rest? Where do you lack a sense of wholeness? Where do you lack a sense of security? Where do I lack that? Quite honestly, I think it, it, what we all carry besides like the circumstances of our lives, like we all have unique circumstances that we're in and we'd say, oh, right here I lack rest. Right here, right here I lack inner contentment. Right here, I, like we're going to have all these circumstances and situations, but I think from a big picture perspective, there are three relationships that we tend to lack that inner peace, that inner security in these three key relationships in our lives that I think Jesus shines a path. So this Advent season, we want to unpack. We want to spend the next three times that we gather unpacking these three big questions, all right, about path and peace in Jesus. So here's the first question. This is what we're going to talk about next week. How does Jesus light the path to peace with God? See, every one of us has a relationship with what we call God. 
That relationship could be tense, strained, confused, non-existent in a sense, but it's still there. We've made a choice to not be in it, but there's a tension. And so we see in the Christmas story that Jesus lights a path to peace with God, that there's a salvation, there's a rescue element there. So what does that mean for us? That's what we're going to explore next week in our everyday normal lives. How does Jesus shine a path? What does that path look like that leads us to peace with God? Another relational tension place where we often lack that inner contentment and we often have unrest is our relationship with others. So let's ask the question, how does Jesus light the path to peace with others? Y'all ever been in like a feud with somebody? No? You're just feeling your feeling, I understand. <laughs> right? There's tension in our world. There's war, right? At its, at its height, there's war and genocide. And, and at its beginning, there's, I hate my neighbor. I don't want to have anything to do with them. They're annoying. They play their music too loud. I don't like working with so-and-so. But Jesus, the Christmas story, is going to reveal to us a path to peace with others. What does that look like? And then finally, on Christmas Eve and Christmas Adam, which is the day before Christmas Eve, in case you aren't aware of that, we're going to gather. Some of you will get that on the way home. Be like, oh, I don't understand. It's a fundamentalist joke, all right? right? As we gather and we like, <laughs> Autumn just got the fundamentalist joke part over there. She started chuckling. She took my breath away right there. I was like, oh, that was good. Right? We're going to gather, we're going to light a candle, and we're going to ask this question, how does Jesus illuminate the path to peace with ourselves? Because oftentimes, that's the hardest relationship. That's the hardest relationship, peace with myself. Because until I have peace with myself, I really never can have peace with others. I really never can have peace with God. And so we're going to gather with family and friends, folks that really aren't sure about going to church, and we're going to, in just a few minutes, I mean literally, talk about what does it mean to have peace with ourselves? And is that like not the beautiful reality and a beautiful question for what child is this? And if we start there, the peace with God, the peace with others flows. So we're going to explore this question. We're going to talk about a path to peace with God, a path to, a path to peace with others, a path to peace with myself. And how does this affect anything? Here's what I believe. I believe that the more we walk the path of peace, the more we walk in the light of Jesus, the more we actually participate in our own healing. See, I think Jesus is a participation sport. <laughs> uh, there's a book, um, and, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was written by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who's passed away, but it's on the, the power and the importance of responsibility, that God is a God who invites us into responsibility, to partnership. And that's the beauty of it. When we walk the path of peace, we start to heal our own lives. And I've never met a person who, when you, you actually sit down and you get to the heart of it and you start to talk, doesn't recognize that there aren't the corners and the spaces in our lives that need divine healing. And divine healing flows through a lot of ways. And it's hard to actually come to that space, but we get to actually participate in our own healing when we start walking that path of peace. And here's what's even more fascinating. When we participate in our own healing, as we start to heal, as we start to understand the pain in our lives, as we start to get to the why behind why I can't love my neighbor, why I have issue with the God that I was handed, or why I have issue with God at all, when we start to actually go through that healing process and we participate in our own healing, 
the more we're going to participate in the healing of others. It's this great mystery of loving your neighbor as yourself, that it just flows, and it's beautiful. So as we wrap up today, here's the question. What's God inviting you into? As we launch into the Christmas season, and it's busy, it's busy, busy, busy. There's purchases, and there's planning, and there's parties, and there's wrapping. I mean, we gave you a calendar just for church stuff. I mean, come on. And you've got work and family and everything else. But in this moment, as we kind of give ourselves permission to breathe and pause before the rush happens, what is it that God's Spirit is inviting you into? On the back of your Connect card, there's some, some opportunities, some ways in which we can respond to the work of God in our lives. So one is to participate in our honest Advent journey. We had a great response last week. We talked about this. Uh, I'd love to see everyone at some level engage with and participate in the Honest Advent. If you check the box on the back of the Connect card, um, you'll be put in a queue of people, and you'll get a daily email that's just a reflection, a personal reflection from someone in our church uh, on the reading of that day. So Honest Advent is, a, is 25 daily readings, and it's written by Scott Erickson. It's really a beautiful, beautiful book. You heard a little bit of it today in our Lighting of the Candle. And so you can get this book digitally. You can pick it up. We have it for sale at the uh, Welcome Center. We make a fortune when we sell these books here. It's how we pay the rent. <laughs> it's what it is on Amazon, all right? I'm not selling you snake oil, right? Um, if you say, well, I'm not a reader, that, that's okay. Like, you don't have to read the book to participate in the journey. You might just want to participate by getting the reflection. It's much shorter. Uh, but it's probably, truth be told, the daily reading will probably take you about 15 minutes. And then, you know, in the afternoon, evening of the day, you'll get kind of a closing reflection in your email inbox. Um, a great group of people have participated in writing these, and you'll get to hear different perspectives from different walks of life about what we're reading. And so maybe God's just inviting you to participate in that journey. I hope that you sense God in, in, inviting you to invite some family and friends to Christmas Eve. It's a great opportunity. We're going to gather in here. We're going to start with a song called Oh, come all you unfaithful. We are on Christmas Eve. It's a beautiful song. It is a beautiful song. Google it. And, uh, and we're going to talk about it's okay. <laughs> How do we come to peace with ourselves? And so we're going to launch and start Christmas Eve with a beautiful song called Oh, come all ye unfaithful. We're going to put the bar where Jesus puts it, not where religion does. It's going to be a beautiful time together with the candles and the kids and all that good stuff. So who could you invite? And I would encourage you this week as we kind of launch in this series to read Luke chapters one through two. That's the, Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. Just read through that. Probably take you 20 minutes, 25 minutes total. Maybe sit down and just in one setting, read Luke one and two, get a cup of coffee, light an Advent candle. I know it gets really weird at that point, but you know, do something different out of the ordinary. When everybody's asleep, when it's nice and quiet, and you don't have to open your Bible, you know, it doesn't have to be a Dickens scene, you know, turn on your phone, Google Luke 1 and 2, and just slowly read through it. Imagine what Luke, Luke is telling a story. Luke's not giving information. He wants to evoke emotion in us. He's using resources and, and pulling poetry and poems and, and life and, and telling us this beautiful truth that's bigger than any experience. It's bigger than any one thing we could imagine. So just slowly read through that this week. 
And the last thing I'd love for those of you that are members or regular attenders to do is this week you're going to start to hear about our uh, Worth It 2023 uh, kind of vision accelerator. Our piece is worth it this year and the new things we want to do and the things we want to continue in our vision. And, and this is an opportunity for us to end the year strong and begin the year strong, not just financially, but with volunteering, with understanding who we are as a church, why, we're, why we exist. And so you'll get start to see information about some of the goals that we have as we kind of enter into this time of year-end giving and we launch into this season. And so I would just encourage you, if you're a member, a regular attender, to just begin to pray, like, how can we participate as a family in this? How can we participate? How can we give of ourselves financially? How can we give of ourselves at volunteering? All that good stuff to help bring peace on earth. So you'll hear more about that. We'll talk about it next week as well. But this is the time to just start saying, how can I participate in, in making our church as healthy as possible in the next year? So I ask the band to do this song one more time, Peace Has Come. It's such a great song. And as we do that, I would just encourage you to finish filling out your connect card, your offering envelope, maybe breathe a little bit. During this song, our room hosts will come and they'll pick up the baskets on the table. If you're sitting in the bleachers, you can just drop your connect card and your offering envelope in the Hope Is Here boxes. If you're online, you can just do it digitally. Thank you very much. So thank you for your participation today. Thank you for being here on a holiday weekend helping us get the Christmas season launched. I love our church. I love that our church focuses on peacemaking because I feel like Christmas reminds us every year, peace on earth. It's not that difficult of a concept to grasp. This is the announcement. Now it's a lot of work, but this is what it's about. So enjoy this song again. I'll be back with our